Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Israel and let's continue our discussion about the ICJ ruling. What have the after effects of that ruling been? Uh, well, I mean, uh, we did talk about this uh, in a special. We had an interview. I don't want to dwell too much on the ruling itself, but if people are uh, have not heard the court, the ICJ ruled on Friday uh, in a lopsided vote that there is probable cause to uh, believe that the Israeli military's campaign in Gaza could constitute genocide or a genocidal campaign. And so they ordered some preliminary uh, steps for the, uh, the Israeli government to take, among them preventing any actions outlined in the Genocide Convention, the 1948 Genocide Convention, enforcing and punishing any incitement to genocide from Israeli officials, preventing, they they ordered the Israelis to prevent the destruction of any evidence of war crimes. Uh, They ordered that the Israeli government intensify its efforts to get humanitarian relief to people in Gaza, and uh, they ordered that uh, the, the Israelis need to come back in a month uh, to report on their progress on all of these things. I mean, you know, as far as I can tell, the Israelis have ignored all of this. There's no movement on the humanitarian front, except insofar as there is a ceasefire negotiation underway, uh, which we can talk about. Uh, there's certainly been no reduction in the intensification of the the military side of the campaign. Um, in fact, the Israelis have gone back into northern Gaza, which earlier this month they they did a big mission accomplished thing about northern Gaza and said they had dismantled Hamas's networks there with their back, evidently having not dismantled Hamas's networks and also, I guess, having not uh, degraded their tunnel capacity. The the Hamas fighters have managed to infiltrate back north and they're launching, supposedly launching rockets uh, out of this area again. So these Israelis have gone back in to northern Gaza, which is a setback, not just in terms of uh, their operations, but if you're looking ahead to Let's say there is no ceasefire and you're just looking ahead to a natural point where uh, the Israeli operation might shift gears. There might be a change transition as the U.S. government keeps talking about to a lower intensity phase of the conflict that this obviously sets all of that stuff back. Uh, It's also a setback for any hope of bringing displaced Gazans back to the north to get them out of the way of the fighting that's now centered in the south. So it's it's a it's a big problem all the way around and certainly does not comport with the ICJ ruling. Uh, South African foreign minister, in fact, just uh, a couple of days ago, accused the Israelis of essentially ignoring the ruling. I don't think there's much question that that's what's going on here. Uh, I'm sure the Israelis themselves would uh, would argue that, but uh, uh, from all outward appearances, it's uh, it, nothing has, has changed in any uh, meaningful way. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about the recent issues that have arisen surrounding the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, and uh, particularly their work with and for Palestine refugees. Uh, The Israeli government has made some accusations against the UNRWA. What are they, Derek? So uh, these came out, uh, the Israeli government released these allegations on Friday, uh, no doubt in an effort to 
distract media attention and international focus from the uh, the ICJ ruling, which mission that mission was in fact accomplished because uh, it's all pretty much anybody's talked about since Friday. Uh, they allege that there are mem- uh, workers, basically employees of uh, UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency, which manages Palestinian refugee issues, has about 13,000 employees in Gaza. The allegation uh, initially was that 12 of those employees uh, participated in the October 7th militant attacks in southern Israel, uh, and then some unspecified nebulous number of other UNRWA employees uh, the, the Israelis have been saying 10%, as far as I can tell, they just pulled that number out of the ether, are somehow affiliated with either Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Uh, and so, you know, this is a big problem for this UN agency, which the Israeli government has for years and years and years painted a target on and been trying to get rid of it because they argue that it perpetuates uh, the Palestinian refugee issue as opposed to just the the continued existence of Palestinians perpetuating it. They claim it's the UN's fault. UNRWA gets funds based on the so-called status of refugees. Now, refugee status, according to UNRWA, and the only refugee organization worldwide, is you can inherit refugee status. So based on the trajectory where you can inherit refugee status, there'll be, you know, going down the road, there'll be not five, six million refugees, but 20 million. And so there has to be also an end to the right of return, an end to the so-called refugee problem that they define. So they made these accusations on Friday. There've been subsequent reporting. Uh, Sky News did something just uh, on Thursday. Uh, saying that they had seen the Israeli intelligence document that was, purports to outline all of these allegations about members of UNRWA, or workers for UNRWA, participating in the the attacks. Uh, that only identifies six uh, of them. So we're down, I guess, to six UNRWA employees out of 13,000 who supposedly participated uh, in this operation. And there still seem to be questions. Uh, even Anthony Blinken said these charges haven't been confirmed. Despite that, the U.S. government, along with several other Western uh, governments, European governments, Germany, for example, uh, has uh, frozen funding uh, for uh, UNRWA to the point where the agency says it's going to have to shut down operations at the end of this month uh, if that decision is is not reversed. There have been some other European governments, uh, Norway is the one that stands out to me, uh, that have uh, expressly refused to cut off funding for the agency and have even said that they will increase it or try to increase it uh, to help make up some of the difference. But but clearly, they're not going to be able to replace the United States, for example, or the UK uh, or Germany. So uh, UNRWA says it's going to have to shut down. This is the umbrella aid agency in Gaza. They are doing all the distribution. Uh, they manage and, and kind of facilitate the actions of all the NGO aid groups that, that are trying to get uh, aid into the region. Uh, into that territory to to address the problems. Uh, there's no replacing them, uh, period, really. There's certainly no replacing them on the fly in the middle of a war. Uh, so this is, uh, it's it's just sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, uh, you know, being uh, through the looking glass in a sense uh, that you're talking about freezing out an agency in the middle of what almost everybody agrees is a humanitarian catastrophe of people starving to death. Uh, diseases are starting to to run through the 
displaced populations in southern Gaza and in Rafa in particular, you know, there there are concerns that we're at the stage where children are going to start suffering lifelong effects from from malnutrition, where you just may start just seeing people start dropping dead because they're they're not getting fed enough. And and we're talking about cutting funding for this organization over what, you know, six people or at most, I guess, 12 people uh, did on October 7th. It's it's just uh, beyond uh, ridiculous to me. But this is what's happening. Um, There's no seeming concern for what this means about, at least not on the the part of the U.S. government, what this means for the relief operation. Uh, I guess uh, they're saying they want the UN to investigate and reform. I don't know how it's expected to do that on a time frame that would uh, avoid the loss of life that's that's likely to come because of uh, these decisions to cut off the funding. But that's that's where things stand. Uh, as I say, there was a report in Sky News on Thursday that that even you know made it small seem smaller than it uh, already did, which was already pretty small. Uh, but this is uh, that's that's still where things stand. There's there's uh, the agency says it's going to shut down. Uh, the funding isn't being restored. There's some push to uh, reverse these decisions, but I, I don't think it's uh, you know being heard at the highest levels of, let's say, the U.S. government. The empire is really acting like an empire. This is like a real mask off moment. Um, yeah, it really when, is. It's like perceived in the breach, right? This is the breach of something, and the U.S. empire is acting as empires and times past have very, very similarly. Um, it's great. it's incoherent. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, we've seen this barrage of comments from the administration all week about how sad they are to see all this suffering in Gaza and Joe Biden's heartbroken at the death and uh, suffering. And yet, you know, they're, they're going out of their way to make it worse. It's well, not this just is that the they're history on autopilot rights. with Israel. Yeah. It's that they're taking these steps like uh, cutting off funding to the UN that, that right. you don't that even even under the the rubric of like we're supporting Israel you don't have to do this you, you don't have to cut off well, the, well it's in, the it's US. interesting because it's like there's this discourse of human rights that has become dominant amongst the liberal side of the political equation but the history of human rights has basically demonstrated time and again that when real politic political concerns or perceived real politic political concerns or really in this issue probably a lot political, domestic political concerns come into play, human rights goes by the wayside. And it's just like, it's it's like if you read the ancients, this is what politics is about, you know, like power and the assertion of power. And there's just something really, you know, foundational going on here, I think, with regards to Israel. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So let's go on uh, to the ceasefire talks. So uh, this has been going on uh, for much of the week. Uh, I think we talked about some of the early stages of this last week, uh, but the the talks have picked up in intensity this week. Bill Burns, the uh, CIA director slash real secretary of state in the Biden administration, went to Paris this week, uh, actually over the weekend uh, into Monday, I think, to talk to uh, representatives from uh, Egypt, from Israel, and from Qatar regarding the framework of a potential ceasefire deal. The deal that's now in place that has been presented to Hamas uh, and according to the Qataris received, they said positively, I don't know what that means. Certainly Hamas has not said like, hey, this is great, we're down, let's do it. But supposedly they, they did react positively on some level. The, the framework is for a 40 day, I've seen 40 and 45. I think now it's 40 day 
initial ceasefire during which uh, the uh, militants in Gaza would release the remaining hostages who are considered to be civilians. Uh, that includes elderly men along with women. The Israeli government would release some number of Palestinian prisoners. The number, the, the, the total number and the identities of those prisoners has yet to be determined. Uh, what would then follow are negotiations on a second phase, which would be presumably of equal length, uh, another 40 days, let's say, uh, during which Hamas would release uh, what it would ca characterize as combatant hostages. So uh, active duty Israeli soldiers, maybe male reservists of uh, military age. Uh, and that would take care of the remaining living hostages. The Israelis would uh, then in turn also release, again, some uh, number of prisoners. Probably, I, I suspect Hamas would ask for a uh, more lopsided uh ratio of Palestinians to Israelis uh, to release these people that, again, it would regard as combatants, then that would that phase, that second phase, assuming that it comes to be, would also entail continued negotiations on a third phase. I'm a little unclear about this. It could be a limited third phase uh, in which uh, Hamas would release the bodies of hostages who have died, been killed, uh, you know, in whatever circumstances since October 7th. And they, again, there would be some release of Palestinian prisoners. And I, uh, I think from Hamas's perspective, they want that to be the end. They want that to be the end of the Israeli campaign and, and uh, the reinstatement of a full ceasefire permanent I mean, you know, permanent until the next one, cessation of hostilities. The Israelis really seem to be resistant to any kind of indefinite cessation of hostilities. They're, they're looking for something that has a beginning and an end, a clear end where they would resume uh, military operations. So that's, that's a huge sticking point that seems to me unresolved. Uh, another sticking point is, as I said, the, the number of Palestinians uh, and the identities of the Palestinians that the Israelis would release as part of the exchange process. And then additionally, I think uh, there are, you know, there's a, a dispute about what would happen during the ceasefire. Hamas is, is insisting that the Israeli military should withdraw from Gaza during the ceasefire, which you can see the, the thinking behind that being, you know, if they withdraw and then it's 40 days or it's 80 days, uh, you know, whatever period of time it is that that there's no fighting, it, it could be more challenging for it gives, you know, would give Hamas time to kind of set themselves back up and, and reset a little bit. and might be more challenging for the Israelis to get back into Gaza after that. The Israelis obviously don't want uh, to be obliged to leave Gaza during this uh, this period. The advantage, certainly from the perspective of civilians, is that, you know, once you get into a you know, month and a half, two months, three months, that's a lot of time uh, if a ceasefire is assured that steps could be taken to really reset the humanitarian situation, to set up camps uh, that actually have working facilities to get, uh, you know, surge additional aid in to make arrangements that are more durable than uh, this border crossing or that border crossing for bringing in large quantities, the, the really large quantities of aid uh, that are required to to deal with the problem. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot to recommend it from from that perspective. But again, it's it's very much 
I think still up in the air. There's been a lot of like wish casting in the reporting on this, I think. Uh, and I, I wouldn't count on anything uh, coming to pass until it actually does come to pass. Uh, let's end the Israel-Palestine section with talking about Biden, who has sanctioned the settlers. Yes, this came down on Thursday. The, the Joe Biden himself issued a new executive order uh, authorizing the government to sanction Israeli settlers over acts of violence against Palestinians, which uh, he's been threatening to do. Uh, this has been something his administration has uh, supposedly pressured the Israeli government to, to rein in settler violence. Now it's taking it upon itself. The State Department then issued, uh, after the executive order was was uh, released, the State Department issued its first designations under the new authority, uh, a whopping four people uh, four settlers uh, designated for sanctions, uh, which amount to you know freezing assets that they might have in the U.S. Uh, and uh, barring them from traveling to the U.S. Uh, I guess it could you you they, there could be also I don't know uh, there could be uh, legal implications for any U.S. citizens that uh, interact with these people uh, at least in a business capacity or professional capacity. Uh, but who knows? This is I think uh window dressing i mean I, I, if it's not obvious like uh this is not a serious effort to deal with settler violence uh for one thing i, I, I the order uh I, I i believe exempts explicitly any u.s citizens who are currently living in west bank settlements and there are tens of thousands of those uh and if you were really serious about dealing with this problem you would not exempt them from sanction or from some kind of legal jeopardy. There's also no indication that the Biden administration has any stomach for sanctioning prominent leaders of the settler movement. These are individual people who have done bad things like attacking themselves, attacking Palestinians. There's no indication that there's any appetite for sanctioning the leaders of the movement uh, up to and including people like uh, Betzalel Smotrich or Itamar Ben-Gvir who are in the Israeli cabinet. And, and Beyond that, just the whole concept of combating settler violence uh, this way by targeting individual settlers when, uh, you know, every, it's, we all know this is a collective state-supported project to settle the West Bank uh, that is, uh, you know, it has to be dealt with at a systemic level, not, you know, bad, bad actor by bad actor. It's, it's just kind of a joke to me it, it's uh it's not a serious effort to reckon with with what the settlement project is or how to deal with it uh, i think it's it's mostly for a domestic uh, audience that is getting fed up with the administration's approach to this conflict and a way to demonstrate that hey joe biden cares he's he's doing something for the palestinians even if it's kind of a joke uh and so you know i i don't look at this as a as a serious thing but derek what do you really think yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love when you get passionate, exactly. Derek. You stir the soul. Uh, let's move on to the drone strike in Jordan and the potential for escalation there. Yeah, this is where everybody's kind of on pins and needles waiting to see what's going to happen. Over the weekend, there was a yeah, drone this is strike. The big one. This is really big. Uh, this is really the big one. Uh, there was a drone strike uh, targeting a facility known as Tower 22, which is located in northeastern Jordan. It is used by U.S. military personnel as a support base for the garrison that the U.S. military maintains at Tanf, which is in southern Syria. The, the Tanf garrison is ostensibly part of the anti-ISIS yeah, like, like empires past, we have garrisons around the yeah, world. Yeah, we have garrisons in places, in, yeah. in countries that don't want us there, that yeah. say, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, we, yep. we have it anyway. Um, 
the, the garrison of TAF is ostensibly part of the anti-Islamic state coalition. It is really there just to kind of squat on the Syrian Iraqi border and make life harder for the Iraqi militias uh, and Iran's other, you know, various other allied groups in that region. So uh, this base is used to support that one. It has not previously, I don't, I'm not even sure it was previously known to exist, let alone uh, having ever been targeted. Uh, certainly, the, the the fact that this attack took place in Jordan is is significant. I think it represents a bit of an escalation. Anyway, uh, the drone strike killed at least three U.S. soldiers. I think at this point it's safe to say it was three. Wounded dozens more. There's some question as to, to what happened here and whether this was a more serious attack in, in uh, the way that it was carried out uh, by... Iraqi militias who are the, you know, the, the U.S. has pointed the finger at Kataib, Hezbollah, and, and these other uh, kind of Iranian-backed militia groups, the axis of resistance, if you want to call them that. Uh, Iran can attempt to distance itself as much as it wants, but we know that it funds, trains, and equips these groups. Uh, the IRGC Quds Force is uh, the, the elite unit responsible for training many of these groups and increasing their skill level. So, uh, you know, Tehran can put out whatever statements at once, um, but there will be uh, a response forthcoming. Part of the story here seems to have been that there was the base, uh, the, the personnel at the base had sent out a reconnaissance drone that was on its way back to the base at the same time that this attack took place, and they mistook the incoming attack drone for this reconnaissance drone that was coming back. And so they didn't, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, jump to their air defenses and do the things that uh, normally are done to, to, you know, ensure that there's minimal or no loss of life. So these three soldiers were the first three U.S. soldiers who have been killed uh, in one of these attacks. There have been dozens of attacks by these various militia groups against U.S. personnel in Syria and Iraq since October 7th. These are the first three deaths directly as a result. I think there was one contractor who died during a false alarm in Iraq at one point of a heart attack. But uh, these are the first three combat, you could say combat deaths uh, in this series of attacks. And so uh, as I say, the, the whole region is is essentially on pins and needles waiting to see how the Biden administration is going to retaliate. There will be a retaliation. Joe Biden told reporters on Tuesday that he's decided what that form, that retaliation uh, will take. He's been pressured from some quarters in D.C. to attack Iran directly. Uh, every time he's been asked, does the U.S. blame Iran for this attack? He's offered some sort of qualified yes. Uh, so uh, at one point he said yes, because they're supplying, uh, they supply the weapons. And, and, you know, indeed, the, the argument is that this drone that was used was Iranian made and supplied to the militia by Iran. But he's never, he's never blamed the Iranians directly. And I think this is uh, partly to prime the waters for something less serious than a direct attack uh, on Iran. CBS News reported on Thursday uh, that the administration has decided on a package of targets in Syria and Iraq against, uh, again, the militia groups. Uh, we don't know what the targets will be or how intense those will be, uh, but that seems to be where the, the retaliation is landing, which should, given that the Iranians have shown no appetite for uh, escalating uh, these tensions into a full-blown war, should, uh, should avoid that. But who knows? We'll, we'll see. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. 
As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to The Nation. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about the secret talks in Bahrain about the conflict in Sudan. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, Reuters reported this um, on Wednesday. I hadn't heard this anywhere else, and I don't think it's been reported anywhere else. For the last month, really, there have been uh, negotiations going on between the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces Group in Bahrain. These are not the first peace talks or ceasefire talks, whatever you want to call them, uh, that the groups have engaged in. But they're apparently more they're higher level than previous talks. They've involved uh, senior figures on on both sides, including, I think, the deputy commander of uh, the RSF, who's actually the brother of uh, Mohammed Hamdan Tagalo, the commander uh, of the RSF. So so pretty high level representation. They've also included representatives from the two main main foreign backers, uh, of these groups, the Egyptian government, which is backing the Sudanese military, and the UAE, which has been backing, uh, although they, you know, continually try to play coy about this, they've been backing the RSF, uh, along with the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, the erstwhile mediators. Uh, I don't know that they've made any real substantive progress yet. They've met three times, supposedly, according to this Reuters piece. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that they're talking, and especially that they're talking at at such a uh, a high level is in itself a, a positive development after, uh, you know, at this point, I think we're into 10 months of uh, kind of unremitting violence, 8 million people displaced, tens of thousands. We don't really know how many because there's not a, uh, a an accurate count uh, killed and, and wounded. So uh, definitely uh, any talking at this point is, is probably a good thing. Uh, Derek, let's move on to the economic community of West African states uh, because Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger have quit that organization. Yes. Uh, all three of them, of course, all three of those countries are under military governments after a series of coups over the last couple of years. Uh, all of them have been at odds with uh, the economic community of West African states, uh, which has been pressuring them to uh, transition back to democratic rule. Uh, in you know as as prompt a manner as uh, as possible, none of the three military governments at this point I think show any indication that they're in a hurry to to make that transition. They've all been suspended from ECOWAS because of the coups and because of their uh, you know uh, the, the tensions over these uh, these delayed transitions. Uh, all three have been sanctioned by ECOWAS, so they're in the same boat, uh, and they have been talking to one another about a kind of confederalized uh, relationship or confederal relationship, something that they're calling the Alliance of Sahel States or ASS, which I assume uh, they, they're using the French acronym, which probably sounds better than that. But, uh, you know, the English acronym is what it is. They all told ECOWAS uh, earlier this week and have since kind of made the formal, uh, you know, whatever it is, paperwork filing that has to be done, I guess, to quit. Uh, ECOWAS. So they are uh, out, presumably without delay. ECOWAS has, uh, you know, said this is a big mistake. The Nigerian government, which has the, the currently has the presidency of that block, lambasted them uh, for their decision. But uh, uh, this is where things stand, I guess. 
Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Ukraine, uh, because there's actually big news uh, in regards to the Ukraine war, and that's Zelensky is firing his top commander. Uh, yeah, there. it's uh, it's a good time to be in Kiev. Uh, boy, uh, yeah. So uh, rumors began to, to circulate, I would say, maybe over the weekend. Maybe it was earlier than that. That was when I first heard it, that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was about to fire uh, his top military commander, Valery Zeluzhny, uh, or at least to ask him to resign. Uh, now, this the tension, the idea that they are not getting along with one another, their intention with one another has been clear for months now, uh, just from uh, public comments, disagreements that, you know, presumably have been worse behind the scenes, but have been bad enough that they some of them have crept out uh, into the open. The Financial Times then confirmed on Tuesday, uh, I think they were the first to, to do this, that Zelensky was indeed uh, preparing to get rid of Zelensky, that he met with him on Monday to inform him that he was, uh, he, he, or to offer him uh, a new job as a military advisor. Uh, Zelensky apparently told him to uh, cram that. And Zelensky said, you know, you're, you're fired either way, so you can either take this job or not. Um, the fact that it it leaked and got out publicly seems to have rocked Zelensky a little bit and, and the government. So they haven't uh, announced officially uh, the firing yet. I think, you know, th- they were hoping to do this kind of quietly and then uh, make a big announcement about Zeluzhny's replacement. But they kind of got caught off guard. So they've they've held back and they've even insisted when asked that there's no plan right now to to fire Zeluzhny, even though there's uh, there's plenty of reporting to suggest that that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, the Washington Post reported some more details about this. They 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 were apparently you know they, there was a, it wasn't must not have been a very good meeting. Uh, they disagreed about a number of things, uh, including. Uh, the possibility of a new military mobilization. Zeluzhny wants uh, around 500,000 new soldiers, uh, which uh, I don't, I mean, it's like getting blood from a stone. I don't know that there's 5,000 new recruits to be had in the Ukrainian population. And certainly I don't know how they could equip and uh, train them uh, at this point, uh, especially with, you know, questions about aid coming in from from the U.S. and, and NATO. So they disagreed about that. Uh, they disagreed about the. Uh, they've been disagreeing apparently about the counteroffensive, which uh, Zeluzhny resisted. You may recall that there was this big push from Western countries that uh, the Ukrainians needed to throw more soldiers into the uh, into the the meat grinder. That they needed to really push on. You know, they pick a part, pick a, an area in the front line, and really just like cram as many men into it as possible, even if it was a killing field, uh, and just over, try to overwhelm the Russians. And Zeluzhny, uh, I would say, rightly recognized that as a suicide mission and didn't want to get uh, people killed unnecessarily. So he resisted that. Uh, that's been a source of tension. Uh, and Zelensky just generally seems to feel that there's a shakeup needed, given that the Ukrainian war effort has 
has run aground. So uh, all of these things have played into this. But the the problem for Zelensky is that Zelensky is popular. He's uh, maybe more popular in Ukraine among the Ukrainian public than Zelensky. Uh, he's certainly more popular than Zelensky, I would say, with within the Ukrainian military. So this is uh, he's going out on a limb here to to fire this guy. He's already a, reportedly offered the job to the uh, commander of the Ukrainian army, Alexander uh, uh, Sierski, who uh, again told him to to get bent. And so now that it's believed he will offer the job to uh, Kirill Budinov, who's the commander of Ukrainian military intelligence. Uh, and is not a battlefield commander. So I don't know what that's going to mean for the war effort. Maybe they'll uh, start relying more on things like drone strikes and, and attacks on uh, targets inside Russia to try and you know, bring the war to the to the Russians. I don't know. Uh, but it is a uh, it is a big shakeup and uh, it, we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh, and there's recently been a new approved EU aid package to Ukraine. So what's going on with that? So this just happened again on Thursday. The European Union's having a, a leader summit in Brussels. Leading up to it, the main item on the agenda was to revisit the 50 billion euro or 54 billion dollar aid package that they considered uh, at last month's summit that was uh, quashed by the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the lead up to this summit about what European Union leaders might do to either threaten Orban or break him, essentially, if, if he continued uh, to resist uh, this this aid package. But lo and behold, uh, he showed up on Thursday and uh, ag- they agreed to it like within an hour, I think, within like an hour or two after the start of the conference. Like this was expected to be so contentious. Uh, that they would have to use the entire summit, basically. They would have to move on to other business. And uh, if, if it was done at all, it would only be done at the last minute after a lot of arm twisting and uh, negotiations. They they managed to conclude it not long after the, uh, and announce it not long after the summit began. So I, I don't know the details. As I say, it's just reported Thursday, when you know, the same day we're recording this. So I've only seen kind of the, the headlines of this. But, um, I you know, I don't know what uh, whether Orban buckled in the, you know, in the face of some of these threats that have been uh, bandied about in, in recent days or or what his rationale was. But he apparently uh, decided to, to uh, keep his powder dry and, and let this go through. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about Venezuela, where the Biden administration has reimposed sanctions. Yes. Uh, so uh, people may be uh, aware that last year, uh, the Biden administration, toward the end of the year, Biden, the Biden administration cut a deal with Nicolas Maduro's government in Venezuela uh, that uh, provided sanctions relief uh, for Venezuela, in particular uh, for the Venezuelan oil sector, which is, of course, the big money maker in, in that economy. Uh, in return for Maduro's government taking steps to ensure that this year's presidential election would be, quote unquote, free and fair by U.S. standards. Well, on Friday, the Supreme Tribunal of Justice, Venezuela's highest court, uh, ruled uh, that it uh, was keeping in place a ban on uh, the uh, leader, the, the the main leader of the, the collective opposition, Maria Corina Machado, uh, who won a primary last year to, to be the opposition, the joint opposition candidate against Maduro. She's been banned. She had previously been banned from electoral politics for, for some legal uh, issues that, of course, she she and her supporters claim are uh, political, trumped up. Um, but the the tribunal ruled on Friday that it's not going to lift 
her ban. The expectation, I think, on the part of the Biden administration and most outside observers had been that this free and fair election thing was kind of riding on Maduro's willingness to uh, lift the ban on Machado and some other prominent opposition leaders who have similarly been barred from from electoral politics and allow them to to run. Uh, and so this was, uh, you know, a heavily watched case. Uh, the fact that the tribunal ruled against Machado uh, didn't augur terribly well for the uh, the continuation of the sanctions relief policy. Mr. Maduro and his regime have decisions they have to make. We want to see him meet the commitments they made back in October to allow opposition parties and candidates to run appropriately and to release political prisoners. We have decisions to make as well. If they don't do that, uh, they've got till April. We'll see what they do. The Biden administration announced on Monday that it was going to start reviving penalties that had, had been lifted under the the, the deal last year. Uh, it began with uh, reimposing sanctions on Venezuela's state-owned gold mining firm or one of them. And uh, it has announced uh, since then that it's effectively uh, going to restore uh, sanctions on uh, Venezuela's oil sector, which, as I say, is the uh, is the sort of big ticket here. So um, I don't know exactly. I don't think any of them, uh, any of the oil sanctions are coming back immediately. I think the understanding is that they're they're due for uh, renewal or uh, expiration in April and the administration is just going to allow them to expire, uh, which effectively reimposes them now because no oil company and no firm is going to uh, do business, you know, sign a contract to do business with the Venezuelan uh, oil sector, knowing that in a couple of months, these sanctions are going to come back online. Uh, so it effectively reimposes them now. And, uh, you know, I guess there is time for, uh, Venezuela to reverse courts here and maybe Machado could appeal her uh, ban. And if the if there's a change in, in position disposition, then uh, the Biden administration could rethink things. But uh, at this point, it seems like this uh, deal is well and truly dead. Thank you, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Haiti and the police intervention there is now in doubt. So what happened is uh, the Kenyan high court ruled on Friday that the uh, Kenyan President William Ruto's plan to lead this international policing intervention that's been in the cards for uh, since October, since the UN Security Council authorized it back in October, was it couldn't couldn't be implemented. The plan called for 1,000 Kenyan police officers to be sent to Haiti, uh, and the court ruled that in the absence of any sort of reciprocal arrangement directly kind of bilaterally between the Kenyan and Haitian governments. It was unconstitutional uh, for Ruto to make this deployment. Uh, Ruto has since uh, insisted that he's still planning to go through with with the the mission. Uh, I think, you know, he sees this as an opportunity to boost uh, Kenya's international prominence. Uh, The Kenyan government has a history of getting involved in UN peacekeeping operations, other international operations of this nature. So it's kind of uh, something that they're already comfortable doing. And the U.S. is going to pick up the tab uh, for most of it, it sounds like. So that's a, you know, that's a chance to, uh, you know, know, maybe make a little money. Who knows? Uh, Anyway, uh, Rudo says he's still going to do this. And apparently the the plan now is to draw up a reciprocal arrangement, uh, some kind of deal that says, you know, Haiti and and Kenya are, uh, 
you know, whatever will satisfy the court basically uh, to allow the, the the mission to take place. So uh, the, there's there's some doubt here after the court ruling, uh, certainly uh, about whether this is actually going to happen. But it seems like Ruto himself is is still fairly confident. And of course, uh, Haiti is uh, in the grips of a uh, horrific gang violence situation. The gangs control huge, large chunks of Port-au-Prince and, and other parts of the country. Um, there's no government really to speak of because all of the elected, uh, all of its elected elements have, you know, their terms have all long expired. Uh, there's no elections. Ariel Henry, the prime minister, uh, was never actually elected to anything. He was appointed by uh, Jovenel Moise, uh, you know, right before he was assassinated and then sort of assumed uh, the office of president without ever really going through any uh, any of the legal uh, niceties that that uh, should have uh, been involved there. Uh, so it's really a mess. And this international inter- intervention has been uh, talked about for months now. The U.S. has been you know pleading with other countries to uh, to do something. The U.S. doesn't want to lead uh, the intervention. I don't know where the Haitian people stand at this point. Uh, there's there's got to be some skepticism given the. Uh, horrific results of previous international interventions in that country, just kind of terrifying stuff. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, clearly the, the, the conditions there are unlivable uh, at this point. So I really don't know where, where people stand on uh, the desirability of this. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's end with the United States. Um, <laughs> a bunch of good news this week. Uh, let's talk about the arms deals with Turkey and Greece. Yeah. Um, so on Friday, late Friday, kind of a Friday news dump, uh, the Biden administration finally gave its approval to the uh, $23 billion sale of modernized F-16s and kits to modernize older F-16s to the Turkish government. This was the uh, quo pro- part of the quid pro quo around uh, Turkey approving Sweden's NATO accession, which they uh, did uh, had already done. Uh, and so the Biden administration was making good on its end of the the bargain. At the same time, uh, it also announced the sale of uh, some $8.6 billion worth of F-35s to Greece, uh, which I suspect is uh, was sort of meant to uh, ease any concerns in Athens or among uh, members of the U.S. Congress about the, such a large sale of uh, aircraft to Turkey. Uh, which is not exactly on anybody's uh, Christmas card list in D.C. these days uh, and, you know, has constantly kind of vacillates between sort of getting along with the Greek government and outright, you know, tension and uh, uh, with the Greek government. So I think this the, the F-35 sale was meant in part to kind of placate some of those concerns. Uh, that's, you know, obviously part of the good news, Danny, but I know you're going to you're going to hit us with the really good news here uh, in a second. Yeah. Jake, insert a, a crowd exploding in applause because, Derek, <laughs> as you well know, the United States achieved a record number of arms sales last year. We did it. Uh, we did it. Uh, you know, I didn't think it could be done, but uh, the State Department uh, announced triumphantly this week that the U.S. sold $80.9 billion worth of arms last year under its foreign military sales program. That is a record. Uh, it is a whopping increase over the previous year. 
um, the highest, according to the State Department, the highest annual total of sales and assistance provided to our allies and partners. That's a quote. That's amazing. That's just, you there, know, there we're is going into some the weekend question. with some good vibes. A- absolutely. I want to end on a high note here. Um, you know, there's there's some question about this. This may rest, the, the record part of this may rest on some technicalities about how weapon sales are classified. Don't or, take anything uh, away you know, from our uh, American whether they actually go arms through, manufacturers, but, Derek. How but, dare you? Yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to diminish anything here. This is uh, definitely a, a huge achievement and one for which all of us, I think, including our listeners, uh, should be proud. So on that joyous note, everyone, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.